It just so happens that this is You Can Play Night in Kitchener, and we could not have a better guest than the guest we have this week on OHL Stories. Uh, real powerful, real important stuff coming up. And Popper and I, we learned that we've got some work to do in some areas when we're putting some pressure on the league for certain things. But we'll get to all of that in future podcasts. The one thing that did jump out to me, and it comes up very near the end of this, Popey, it is, where are our listeners from? Where are our viewers from? Besides our parents and our immediate families. My I'm really parents curious. aren't listening or watching. Come on. My mom watches everyone. She sends me uh, text messages. Michael, uh, you had a nice jacket on. Michael, I really liked that shirt. Really? Speaking of, is that a cardigan or is that a, like a sport coat? It's a, uh, it's a sweater blazer. Huh. Channers menswear, Uptown Waterloo. Talk to Mark, like Mike, anybody. It's yeah. Thank you. I, I just, as, your net sweater is very solid too. Well, I was, I, I only asked because I feel like as two bald broadcasters doing a podcast on a split screen with similar glasses, I feel like our, our clothing is a little too similar this week. I know. And maybe weird. we should plan that moving forward. Good point. We'll send the pre pod text from now on yeah. just to make sure we're not doing too much of this. Uh, you'll find Popper on Twitter at underscore Chris Pope. I'm at Farwell underscore OHL. The email address Farwell and Pope at gmail.com. And hey, if you haven't already, like if you're just coming to this once a week for poops and giggles, awesome. Subscribe. Would you do that for us? Subscribe to the podcast. Leave us a review. Tell us what you think. And this is where this is what I want to learn this week if if we can. I got the sense early on, and maybe Pope it was because we had Jeff Tui on from Peterborough, Sherry Basson, who has been in so many different places, but Oshawa was a big stop for him. Killer, Brian Kilroy from Ottawa, uh, Linger from Kingston, and, and Steve Moe Malaski from Cornwall. We were in the East, and, and I remember getting some feedback from people in the Eastern side, even Eastern Ontario, if you will, like the Cornwall, Ottawa, et cetera, areas. And, and they said, you know, pick, just found your podcast, become a fan. I think we know in our heart of hearts because we're based in Kitchener and there's a pretty passionate fan base that most of our listeners are in the region of Waterloo and maybe just beyond. But I'd like to know, like, have we touched every market yet? Like Erie, are you listening? Sault Ste. Marie, are you paying attention? So if you're up to it and you're listening right now at underscore Chris Pope at Farwell underscore OHL or via email Farwell and Pope at gmail.com. We'd just love to know if you are, or where you are listening from. Love to crowdsource this a little bit. Just find out if we're getting into all 20 of those markets. Because if we're not, I want to. And that means you too, London. Let's go. My buddy Shaner, I know he listens. And we don't need to hear that you're listening from your parents' basement. We just need to know which city. So that's, yeah. And make sure to subscribe to the podcast. It actually helps us out a great deal. Even if you're just a fan, you listen from time to time. Go on whatever podcast catcher you got, whether it's Spotify or whether it's Apple iTunes, and just give us a subscribe. That's all. And if you want to leave us a review, you can do that too. You can let us know if you hate it or love it. You can be honest. We have thick skin. (laughs) We dish it. (laughs) We're ready to take it. And identical sweaters. Yes. And thick skulls. Uh, Okay. So that's (laughs) that's enough from us two this week. Uh, Let's get to our podcast guest because it's a long conversation, but in a conversation that 100% should be happening in more places 
than it is. And you'll hear about that moving forward. But Brock McGillis was a young hockey player breaking into the OHL with NHL aspirations. And a lot of scouts agreed with him that he could probably end up there. But an almost humorous string of injuries and misfortune um, led him to miss a lot of time. And on top of that, he was also dealing with being closeted, being uh, a gay man in a sport that really doesn't open itself up to that much at all. And especially back when he played. And there's not much that has really changed in the game to open things up for an openly gay player. But if it's up to Brock McGillis, that will change. You know, Brock, usually my uh, my anal retentiveness makes me want to go everything in chronological order, right? There has to be order to things. But I feel like in the context of this conversation, we kind of have to start at the end. Like you today are described as one of the most important and influential voices in the game of hockey. Not bad for a guy that played a handful of games with Windsor and Sault Ste. Marie about 20 years ago. Um, I'm just offended that you told the world it was 20 years ago. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, it's really bizarre. Um, Kind of surreal. Uh, Something I never was really signing up for, to be honest with you. But um, I I guess I'm one of those people now. And it's strange uh, considering the trajectory considering where what my career was supposed to look like as a player and then didn't and where it sort of led me to is uh pretty wild when you do look back on your time and windsor and sue obviously there's some positives there's quite a few negatives how do you look at the your entire time in the o as a whole I think I try and break it down into like increments almost because there's so much that happened to me in such a, a short amount of time. Like I went through some wild stuff in a span of four, four and a half years um, that was condensed to like, if you look at my playing card, it says, you know, like one season. Um, but there was so much, so many things that happened in that time frame that led to it only being, you know, 14 games as opposed to what it was supposed to be that it's, it's surreal. It taught me a lot. Um, I think it taught me a lot of independence. It, um, it, it, it was a very strange time in my life. Like uh, probably the most difficult point in my life. So it's, it's surreal. It's kind of like, not now, but at, for a while, it was scary to look back on. Um, but it, it's, uh, I'm, I'm sort of grateful for it because I think it's turned me into who I am today. What was your hockey career supposed to look like? Because I think everybody that enters the Ontario Hockey League has that vision, right? And this is going to be the stepping stone to the next thing. And you probably have it figured out in your mind. What was it supposed to look like for you? Well, um, when I was... 15 i was playing uh uh i don't know what it's called is it u18 as opposed to um back then it was the first year of the bantam draft so um i went up and played up in the north because competition was a little better and i was having an exceptional year um and i was ranked really high like that was the first year so they had uh 
a midget draft and a bantam draft. And uh, if you went in the first four rounds of the midget draft, you got to play, you know, that you're allowed to select two underagers who could play and then everyone else went in the bantam draft. Um, I was ranked really high. Like I was projected to go in that, you know, in the midget draft and be one of those first four rounders. And then um, I got into a fight at school and, and it, to know me at all knows, like, I don't fight. I'm, I'm not a fighter. I'm a lover. My brother, who you guys have probably seen play hockey, Corey McGillis, he, he fought a little bit more than I did. Um, I, I, but somebody did something, it led to an altercation that was like, I was sort of thrust into a fight at school and I broke my hand and I shattered my metacarpal and I missed the second half of the season. And I dropped from the top four rounds there to the Bantam draft. So the next year I go to camp with Windsor and I'm thinking like the scrape, I'm, uh, you know, like I'm going to go there and show how good I am. I had a great off season, felt really great. Walked into camp and probably had the best camp of my life. Like just domination. And, and Mike Kelly went to the league and requested that I be allowed to stay up. They want to sign me. Uh, the league said, no, it's our policy. You can't. So then I was um, going back. I ended up coming back to Sudbury and a long, complicated story, but I ended up going back for another year or midget. Um, the following year, I went to Camp Neo at 17 and uh, Windsor had two returning goalies, Mike Layden and Ryan Ashbar. And um, I still had, I signed already. I like was in the system. Um, I tore my groin this, that summer training at the end of the summer and couldn't participate in most camp. So then obviously they sent me down. I actually went to Elmira. I went, I played that year in Elmira. And at one point they tried to call me up and Elmira wouldn't let me go. Um, which didn't sit well. But the next year I came in and uh, I started the year and I was really struggling. This was about the point that following year when I was turning 18, where I was really starting to struggle with my sexuality. And I'm sure we'll get dive into that. But walked into that season, um, myself and Ashbar, and they're like, if you can take the number one role, it's yours. And I started off, training camp was going well, then I got mono. So I started the year with mono, and, and I think the mono was less to do with, had more to do with the fact I was struggling so much, and I was drinking, and the stuff we'll get into after, not sleeping and everything else. I got really sick. I lost 20 pounds, came back, practiced two days, and then... Uh, uh, Tom Webster was the coach. And he's like, okay, you're playing tomorrow night. So, all right. I started seven in a row. I think I was first or second star in five of the games. Like, I was playing well. I had a bad first game against Plymouth. And then I started playing really well. And then the seventh game was in Kitchener. And... Um, I'm in Kitchener. We're playing the Rangers. And that was here. They had Derek Roy and a bunch of guys were 18 at the time. So they had a pretty good team. 
Um, and I, I remember it like it was yesterday, Derek Roy comes in, Kitchener's on a power play, comes into the offensive zone and cuts across uh, top of the circles and takes a shot on net. I make a save and it was right from the middle. I make a save. I try and deflect into the corner of like to my left. And there was a guy standing on the, on uh, right on the goal line, like right back door hits him in the chest, drops down on a stick. So I dive over to try and like, it was just the only play I had, like he had an empty net tap in. I dive over my blocker falls off, falls off. And one of my D takes a stride off my finger, trying to skate over there. So I split my finger open. I think I had a hundred stitches. I had to be rushed off the ice. Um, They couldn't even fix me in Kitch. I had to go. They had to rush me to a surgeon in Toronto. Uh, um, I went to the hospital in Kitchener. Funny, a friend of mine was there from Elmira watching the game. She came to the hospital and, um, she saw him, saw it and fainted. Like it was just hilarious. And I was on so many drugs. I just couldn't stop laughing. Um, so I, my uncle from Toronto was at the game. So he rushed me to Toronto. I stayed with him overnight. They patched it up and I had major surgery the next morning. I still can't strain this like to this day. And it's the same hand. I don't have a knuckle here from that fight at 15. So I call it the curse of the the fight. Like everything kind of happened after that. But at that point in time, I was like mid-season rankings. I was on the NHL draft list. I I was projected to be a player. Like I was a late birth year. So it's fine that I was 18. Like it was my draft year or late birthday rather. Um, And then now all of a sudden I'm hurt. So Windsor went out, we had Spezza and we had those guys that ended up being the year they traded Spezza, but they had Odd and Gleason. They went and got Wellwood. Um, they trade for Corey Campbell. It was an OA and brought him in to kind of solidify things because I just taken the ball. Right. And um, so they needed a new guy to solidify and there's no timetable with me. Um, so now I'm sitting at home. I'm really depressed. I'm drinking. I'm on heavy medication, like I'm on painkillers. I'm sitting like in Windsor, my billets. And I'm still like, I, I, I still haven't regained any of the weight or anything from like, I, I just got over mono. So I'm like not in a great state. And one day I just went to the rink and I don't know why. I don't know how I'm sure it was all this crap I was on. And I just went into Mike Kelly's office and said, um, so you traded for a goalie. I want to trade just out of nowhere. My parents had no idea. Nobody had any idea. And Mike's a really nice guy. And I think the world of Mike Kelly. So he said, all right, like, okay, I guess we'll trade you. And he's uh, Sue and Sudbury were playing in Sudbury that week. And I went home, I drove back to Sudbury the day they were playing each other and knowing I was going to one of the two teams. I didn't know who. So I didn't find out until I got to the rink. And I was kind of hoping it was Sudbury. They were rebuilding. It was like near the end of the Burt Templeton time in Sudbury. And um, it would have been a great opportunity. I would have played every night. Uh, But the Sioux had Ray Emery, who they thought would make the World Juniors. So they were like, they needed a goalie while he was gone. 
So they traded for me. And by the time Ray left for the World Jays, I was just starting to come back from the hand injury, starting to play. And initially I thought it'd be good. Okay, Ray's gone for a month or so, whatever it is. Um, Then he gets cut. He was CHL goalie of the year. He should have made that team. Like it's criminal that he didn't. And Craig Hartsburg was the coach. And Hartsy was one of my favorite coaches brilliant like hockey mind but he rode his goalies like it was the nhl so i think ray started you know i i I got there in mid to late december and i played seven games the rest of the year and had a 940 save percentage like it wasn't like i was playing (laughs) bad like I, i was putting up numbers but even the night before the draft i thought i was being drafted like teams were calling and it was just, I missed six out of the eight months with injuries. And then at 19, so I didn't get drafted at 19. I was negotiating, my agent was negotiating a deal with the team. Um, and I was going to their main camp and we were negotiating a contract. And two days before, um, well, that, that summer, John Van Beesbrook took over in the Sioux. Yeah, I was on that team. Um, <laughs> so... Then a week after he takes over, he trades for his nephew, Joey Biasucci, the goalie. And his dad, Sam, had just bought the team. So they anoint him the number one goalie midsummer. So I'm like, well, screw this. I'm like, trade me. Like, I'm not staying here to back up, you know, the, the owner's son and the, the GM coach's nephew. So I'm like, trade me. And they're like, no, you have to report to camp. We'll trade you if you report to camp. So I report to camp. I'm supposed to leave to go to the NHL team in two to three days. And my agent's like, we're going to get a deal done. You're going to sign a deal. Thinking this is great. The day before I'm supposed to leave, I tear my MCL. I miss the whole season. Even with that, I tried to come back and play on it. Uh, Teams were trying to trade for me. I asked, I, I started rehabbing in the Sioux. Then I asked for, like, I finally said, okay, I can kind of skate, like, trade me. John told me to go home, wait for a trade. One team brought me in, and they were getting a deal done, so the Sioux said I could skate there. And then last minute, they asked for second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh round picks for a guy that played 14 games in the league. I said, wave me. (laughs) My agent got a deal done with Shawinigan. Wave me. I can go to Schwinn again. I don't even have to play in your league. Just let me go play. Um, so every team knew, let me clear waivers. I g- try and go to Schwinn again because they knew that John would pull me back off. I go to Schwinn again. I, I travel there. I'm skating with them. Then he asked for half a million dollars for my card. Yeah. <laughs> so... I thought I was having a career in the game. Everything to that point told me, like I was highly ranked going into the OHL, had some bad luck with injuries. And then at this point, I had good runs in the O. I just had a bunch of injuries and I was sick and depressed and dealing with a ton of crap. So like to that point in my life, I I thought I was, you know, like I was going to have this, Like even at 20, 
at 20, I said, well, screw this. I don't want to play in the OHL. So I signed with Kalamazoo. I started the, the year at Kalamazoo, got hurt again, came home because they don't keep you like you're a backup goalie. You're just, they'll, they'll find another one, right? Come home. And then by the time I'm healthy, it's December. And I had offers to go back to video. And the best thing you're going to get is in OA is probably a tryout in the show. Like maybe like it with half a season left. Um, I went to uh, Trenton in the OJ. They gave me a bundle of cash. I won't mention amounts or anything. I lived in the, you know, the Holiday Inn with the, uh, with the plane right on the 100%, highway. 100%. I know that one. 100%. I was, I was living there. <laughs> I was 20 years old, living in the Holiday Inn in Trenton. My meals comped, tons of cash. And Mark Crawford's dad was the head scout, Floyd. So he said, listen, come here. We'll give you a ton, a ton of everything. And I'll guarantee you a try with Vancouver. So I said, well, how do I say no to that? So I went there. We go 10-0, finished regular season. I looked, I got there and didn't even look at the standings before I went. They were second last in their conference. So I didn't know what they were doing, like paying me. And then we bumped up. We ended fourth. We're in the 4-5 matchup and we lose in the first round. Every game went to double or triple OT. But then as soon as that ended, I got a call to go back to Kalamazoo. So I went back pro and, and I was playing pro at 20, which is great. First game, uh, lose 2-1 in a shootout. Uh, Brent Gretzky scores the winner on me. The next game was my second game back pro. Um, we're playing in Muskegon. That's a big rivalry, Kalamazoo and Muskegon. Um, and do you remember Jason Lawmaster? Played in the O. He's older. Like if I'm 30, he's got to be like 44, 45 now. Tough. Like big guy, probably 6'5", 240. He comes down the wing, takes a shot. I make the save, follow the rebound into the corner. Watching the puck, he didn't stop. And he took a shot at the top of the circle. Comes in, boom, knocks me out cold. And there goes my... <laughs> but back then, there was no concussion protocols, so they left me in the game. The next, my, my Kalamazoo stats look terrible. I was playing unreal. The next six shots go in the nets, first period. Period ends, I go to the coach and go, I can't play. Like, I can't even see. And um, and then, so then I'm thinking, okay, whatever, it's fine. Next year, I'm going to go to Vancouver. I can show them what I can do. Um, lockout. So I lost that. But, I mean, so to that point in my life, through my junior ages, I was still believing, like, like, you know, one break the other way as opposed to this way where I kept getting hurt or fluke shit kept happening. And I'm on a road to like on a path to the NHL. Do you, do you think without, and I'm sorry for kind of chuckling because it's almost laughable. Oh, it's hilarious. Right. All these things just keep happening. But do you think without all of that, that you'd still be the advocate you are right now? I think it would be different. I think I probably would have had to come out at some point um, because I probably would have died had I hadn't. Um, But I think um, I would be in a very different position 
the longer you're in the culture, I think the more ingrained you become in it. And as much as I was in it and immersed in it, I was still, because I was always hurt, I was sort of on the periphery. So you know how the guys come in for treatment when everyone gets on the ice or they have to come in early before everyone gets there. So I wasn't always around the culture as much as I would have been otherwise. And so I had time alone, time to reflect, time to see things and what I liked and didn't like about it, which I probably wouldn't have had. And, and, but at the same time, I think I'm a critical thinker and I, I would have analyzed and seen it for what it was at some point. So it would have been a little different. But I, I think I would still be that person. I don't think I would be silent, especially if I'd made the NHL um, have even more people coming to you and whatnot, right? So, like, it, it's hard to stay silent with that. Can you recall from back then, Brock, what the the overriding emotion would have been that you were feeling? Was it a Was it a fear of being found out? Was it anger for not being true to yourself? What, like, yeah. what was it that you were experiencing? <sighs> Anger, frustration, uh, self-loathing, self-hate. Um, I hated my... If you're in a locker room every day and every time somebody puts somebody down, they're either feminizing them or using homophobic, homonegative, whatever you want to call it, language, right? And um, so for me... Every time I heard that, it was like, you can't be that. If you're that, you can't play the sport you love. You can't be. And, and it, it's really messed up because from a very young age, your identity as a hockey player is hockey. You know what I mean? People don't come up to you on the street and be like, how's school going? Like friends, family see you or uh, bump into somebody at a mall. That's my uncle's buddy from, you know, and they'd be introducing me to their kid. Like, and oh, Brock plays hockey. Like, so your whole identity, everything is, is wrapped around hockey. You go over to friends' houses. How's hockey going? Their parents, first thing they say, how's hockey? So my whole identity was hockey. So to me, it was like, okay, if hockey is my identity, this other thing is something I can't be and play hockey. You just can't do that. You know, they won't let you. (laughs) Um, So I can't be that. So anytime I thought about being that or or would, you know, think about it, I'd, I'd get angry with myself. I was, it's funny. People thought I had this incredible life. And I say this when I speak publicly a lot, like, yeah, I was the stereotypical hockey bro. I partied hard. Um, I was, I'm ashamed to admit this, but I was, and I admit it intentionally because I, I think it's an important thing to note. I was a womanizer. Um, you know, I, I adhered to the norms. I wasn't a fighter. So it's like, how else do you show that hyper-masculinity that's, you know, entrenched in this culture? So well, you're a womanizer. You gotta be funny. And you have to sleep with a ton of women if you're not going to be the tough guy. So I took that on. I was a goofball. I partied hard, but I was smart in school, but I, I acted like a goofy kid. Um, and I, 
I was took on this womanizer thing and, and I would get my friends, like I was 17 years old, get walking into clubs in different cities because you're in the OHL. And, and at that time, you know, you're treated like a king. So, you know, you're, you're, you're a micro celebrity. I equate it today to being like an Instagram influencer or YouTuber. You, you have, you're famous and known same way an NHL players players are, or a celebrity is, except you're accessible. You're somebody's neighbor. You're, you know, the person going to school with their peers. Like, so people around me thought I had this cool life. I'd get my underage friends into bars. I do these different things. I like, everything was awesome, but they didn't know. I, or I would date, like, they'd be like, oh, this uh, teenage girl is hot when I was 17. I'd be like, okay, I'm going to date her. I'd just make it happen. And what, you know, they didn't know is I'd go home at night to like my billet's house or when I was back in Sudbury and cry. I cried every night. I hated myself. I, I hated myself for doing what I was doing. It was almost like it was self-preservation. And, and, it's, and that's why I share it because it's really messed up that I used other people to you know, to survive. And I feel a tremendous amount of guilt for that. Um, But it it was all self-preservation, but I was like, I was drinking every night when I was in the OHL, I was drinking every single night. Um, So I was on Percocets with my hand, just coming back from mono and drinking nightly. And, and, and then trying to figure out where I was going to die because that's what I wanted. And it's because it was beat into me every single day, just from everyday language that people were using that I was bad or wrong, that I couldn't be me. So that's how I felt. And, and so that led, I think, so I wasn't sleeping. I think that led to more injuries. I've had mono three times in my life. Like that's like, I'm a medical mystery. But they were all happening during my, you know, period of 16, 17 to 25, 26, like where I was really struggling. And all these things, you know, were happening. And, and, and I just, I couldn't look at myself in the mirror. I wouldn't even look at myself in the mirror. I, by the time I got to the Sioux, I started to isolate myself. I showed up to a team midway through the season. I wasn't playing very much. So it's the only thing that like kind of kept me going was playing. So it's the only time I could, you know, forget about it all. And then I stopped doing that. I stopped training hard in practice. Like I wasn't pushing hard anymore. I, I just hated life. Um, and then when I was injured, it got even more worse. Like that next year when I was hurt, I was, I was hanging out with some of the guys off the walls and different things living in Sudbury. And I was just drinking. I was just numbing it every single day. And, and there's been times where I like, I remember one time you two probably know her, Sanaya Spurgey. Uh, Sanaya, when she was covering the OHL, talked me out of uh, dying by suicide one night. Like it was dark. I'm, I'm curious because, you know, we, when you cover the OHL, we hear a lot. We talk a lot about billets. 
And when you talk to the majority of billets, they look at the kids who come into their homes as their own children. I'm sure billet parents that listening to this story, understanding what you were going through at that age, probably are going to lose sleep over it. What was the relationship and maybe what is the relationship with some of the billets you had while you were going through that? I think I was um, a little more closed off my billets in the Sioux just because I got there midway through. I lived with two other players on the team. Um, it was, they were younger, was a little chaotic. Their son just got back. He was a professional baseball player and he was back home, uh, rehabbing an injury. So it was a busy house. Uh, the, I spent more time in Windsor probably. Um, I was close to them. They had young kids, but keep in mind, I had this from my own parents. Mm-hmm. And my parents were very involved in my life. Like, so uh, when you're hiding who you are, it's very easy. If you can do that to the length I did for the amount of time I did, like at that point, I was still suppressing it. But I, after that, like I was, you know, uh, playing hockey and, and I was in a three-year relationship without anyone knowing. Um. I hit it so nobody knew. Nobody knew that when I was struggling, I'd wait till they'd go to bed to start drinking. I'd, you know, they, they wouldn't know if I snuck out. I would drive around at night and cry. I would, like, whatever I did, they had no idea. And I had a good relationship with them and, and still do. I still they talk to them on social media all the time and, and see their kids grow up and now they're becoming adults and it's aging me and making me feel bad about myself, but um, you know, uh, they were wonderful people. They, they were so supportive of me. They were huge cheerleaders. They were still billeting in Windsor when my brother was playing there. Like it was, um, and you know, I, so I'd go visit my brother and I would see them and and it was wonderful. Like they were so good to me um, and, and so supportive, but I was able to hide it. I was able to hide all of it. And I didn't know who or what I could trust. Like, can, can I trust a billet if I tell them? Are they going to tell the team? Is that going to ruin my career? Because I knew that if anyone knew I was gay, hockey would be done. At that time in society, that's the way I felt anyway. In, in my mind, logically, that's the way, that was the logic running through my mind, whether it's illogical or not. That's why I felt, and still how a lot of people feel today, and I'd argue um, still happens today where kids get pushed out of the sport because of their sexuality. Um, so I can trust them. I mean, my parents, I, I remember being six years old and asking my parents, what if I'm gay? And they said, if you're gay, you're gay. You're Brock, we love you. But my dad was uh, coached triple in junior hockey for 30 plus years, um, scouting the OHL for over 10 years. And I was afraid that he'd become sensitive to the language used and stand up to it and accidentally out me. Uh, same thing with my brother. My brother was first round pick in the O played pro. And, and I was, you know, is he going to stand up to guys saying it and it accidentally slips that I'm gay? And I didn't know. So it was like, it was self-preservation. You did though, 
as I understand it, Brock, have kids that you were working with, that you were coaching, stand up for you, even though you didn't at first know that they knew that you were gay? Yeah. So that was after I retired. Um, I had come out to my family and I came out, I was friends with Brendan Burke and uh, Brian's son that came out as gay. And when I saw him come out on TV, I reached out to him immediately. And he's one of the first people I came out to. Um, And we formed a bond of friendship. It was like the only other person who understands me kind of. Um, so I, I reached out to Brendan on socials and, uh, we became friends and we'd talk pretty much every day. And then one day he sent me a message and it said, I can't wait for the day that you're out to your family. Like I am to mine. And I ignored his message. And for the reasons I just said, you know, I was just afraid of the impact, uh, that ended up being the last thing he ever said to me two days later, Brandon passed away in a car accident. And I was sitting there and my career was basically derailed. I was playing university hockey and still struggling. Uh, it was done. Um, I was having uh, three more knee surgeries and like my body was the body of a 70 year old and I'm in my thirties. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I had to find a way to honor him. And I looked back at that message and I told my family. I started with my brother and, and then I told my parents and I told everyone in my life who wasn't involved in hockey. And then when I stopped playing, I moved back to Sudbury and I started working with athletes. It just kind of happened. I was in a gym one day and saw some guys training like bodybuilders when they were trying to be hockey players and drove me nuts. So I'd tell them what to do. And they're like, start training us. So I literally turned my garage into a gym initially. And then went from there by, by year, the year you're talking about, it was probably about year five. I ran the business for eight or nine years. Uh, I was up to about a hundred athletes. I was training daily uh, off ice training in the off season on ice skill development in season, off season and goalie training. And I hid my sexuality all those years. I was volunteering, coaching. I would work with on ice with about eight teams a season. I just love doing it. Like, I just love being on the ice. I love helping kids develop. And I thought, well, I, I was supposed to be that guy. I didn't end up being that guy. You know, maybe I'm meant to help them become that guy. Um, and I was hiding my sexuality because I feared that uh, I was in Sudbury <laughs> and I was in the North and I didn't think there was be, you know, there isn't a ton of exposure to uh, the LGBTQ plus community. And I was really genuinely afraid that people wouldn't want their kids to work with me if they knew I was gay. And um, then I found out that they knew a mom called me and hockey parents, as you're both probably aware, are a unique breed of human. They're just special. Um, And working with about 100 daily, it meant at least 100 phone calls and text messages daily. And sometimes it meant, you know, two parents per child. In a lot of the instances, it meant almost 200 texts or phone calls daily. I'm like, don't you communicate with your wife? Like I just talked to her. (laughs) Um, I'm like, 
I, I became a, a marriage counselor, a therapist. Like it was wild. I'm going to write a book on it one day, but I, I'm not kidding. Um, but this mom called me and I thought little Johnny didn't get enough power play time last night or something. And she says, Brock, I want to set you up on a date. And I said, what's her name? And she said, Steve. I said, what? And she said, Brock, you're gay. I'm like, how do you, like, how do you know this? And her son was 15. She goes, oh, my son told me. She goes, all the boys know. They've known for years. So I started to watch and I always tried to curb racist, sexist, homophobic language with my athletes. But I started to notice that anytime somebody said something homophobic, they'd freeze up and apologize to me. And maybe they had been before that. And I just avoided it, didn't realize, but I started to notice it. I thought, cool, maybe we're creating this shift. I have this bubble within the hockey world, which is in a bubble of itself in society. And, you know, I have this little one within it. Maybe we're creating a shift here. They're, they're recognizing their language and they're freezing up and apologizing. They're, they're noticing it. And I thought, or they could apologize to me and go to the rink or to school or wherever else and call kids fags. And I really had no idea. But one day I wasn't there. And um, I had a sprint coach working with some athletes on a track at the end of a two hour workout sprint coach told them they had 10 more 200 meter sprints or something. And one of the younger players who came from a very progressive household looked at sprint coach and said, this is so gay. I can't believe you're making us do this. One of the older players who was already in the O Brad Chenier who's playing in North Bay looked at the, the younger player and said, we don't say that here. Give me 50 push-ups. And the younger player said, you're right. And dropped down and did 50 push-ups on the spot. And that became something my athletes adopted. And they would hold each other accountable that anytime somebody said something homophobic, they would do push-ups. Before I knew, knew it, they were all doing it. And like I said earlier, these kids, hockey players in our culture, Canadian culture, especially major junior players and high-end AAA players and stuff, they're influencers. So they would take it to their peers at school. They would take it to their teammates and people I didn't even know were doing push-ups every time they used homophobic language. It started to spread. Um, the younger player, one of his teammates one night they were playing, I think it was minor midget, um, was he was on FaceTime with his girlfriend. They were 15. And she said, let's hang out. And he said, no, I can't have practice. And she said, that's okay. You never want to hang out with me. And he said, give me 50 push-ups right now or we're breaking up. And they both dropped down and did 50 push-ups. And these are two people I've never met in my life and will probably never meet. But it, it, it sort of showed me that we can evolve this and that I had the ability to create shifts and, and that we all can. I mean, those kids created a shift in me to spark what I do now. November 2016, you call Sanaya, who we've had on this podcast. What went into that conversation? Well, I, um, so three, actually one, I probably, yeah, three things happened that led to that call. Um, a hockey association in Sudbury blackballed me. They wouldn't let my business that worked with the most kids in the off season train their teams in season. Um, they said something about insurance. I had every insurance needed. I had like 
but mine was the only business in the entire city not allowed. And yeah, in the off season, I worked with the majority of the players in the city and the majority of the elite young players in their association. Uh, I also grew up playing the association. So did my brother and uh, my dad coached in at the time, my dad and I and my brother were all coaching in it. So, and I was the only one that had a business doing this stuff that volunteered my time coaching. And yet my business was the only one blackballed. Uh, so true to form, my dad saw the president of the association and he said, is it because Brock's gay? And he said, what? I had no idea. Even though that mother, you know, a couple months before that told me that everyone was starting to find out. And um, I knew he knew, but that night he went and called some of the coaches who I was volunteering my time with. The next day I showed up to a rink and the coach of the minor midget team that I was helping out with said, um, I no longer need your services. Thanks. So guys I was friends with, coaching with, buddies with, kicked me off their staffs. No reason given. And every fear I had in this culture came true. And I've seen that since in other ways. It's less overt, but it does still happen. But there I saw it for the first time in an overt way. And I wasn't equipped to deal with it. And I, I sunk and, and felt everything I felt those years before. And that, like, this was, I was, you know, 20, 30, 31. So it wasn't like I was 18, but I felt the same way I did back then. And then right after that, there was an incident, uh, the massacre at Pulse Nightclub in Orlando, where somebody walked into a gay bar and murdered 49 people just for being part of the LGBTQ plus community. And the reality is for my community, whether you're in Sudbury or Toronto, where I am now, or Kitchener, Vancouver, Montreal, doesn't matter. Um, those bars are safe spaces. And they are spaces where people can go and love who they love and be themselves without fear of violence, which they still experience even in our progressive major cities, uh, threats, verbal assaults, everything else. That's a space where they can go and be them and not worry about it. That was ripped away from all of us that night. And it pissed me off and I didn't know what to do. Because it's North America. It's not somewhere across the world where it's legal to be gay. And I've had people come to me from those countries. I had somebody come to me since coming out from a country where it's legal to be gay. And his best friend wrote the first LGBTQ plus newsletter in a country and was found by the government decapitated. <laughs> like, but it wasn't there. This North America. And then right after that, one of my friends was running a major LGBTQ plus organization. And he was hosting a charity event that upcoming Friday. I think Pulse happened on a Saturday. On the Wednesday, he called me and he said, um, Brock, you can't come. I said, well, that sucks. I wanted to go. He goes, Brock, I just got a call from the RCMP and I'm on a terrorist hit list. I said, What? I said, this isn't funny. At the time, we didn't know who was responsible for Pulse and a lot of groups were taking credit. I'm like, don't joke about this. This isn't funny. And he's like, no, I'm not kidding. My friend was on a hit list. 
and I'm not going to name the name of the group since it's going on, you know, the internet and whatnot, but I remember that. And I said, well, are you going? They said, yeah, they, I have to go. And that year was the first year Toronto went from pride week to pride month. He had been very visible in the media and whatnot. And he became a target. I said, well, if you're going, I'm going with you. And I was still living in Sudbury at the time. And I drove to Toronto. And I remember we were sitting outside of his condo, getting ready to jump in an Uber. And we chugged a drink, like a little liquid courage. And we got in the car. And we looked at each other like, we're going to die tonight. And we went to this charity event and they had metal detector wands out at the door. We had undercover police around us. Um, They were frisking everyone on the way in. Thankfully, nothing happened. But I remember having a second by myself and I just looked around and reflected. And I said, I need to do something. Like I need to do something like these are three major things in succession. I said, I need to stand up somehow and do something. So the next day and it happened, it was in the summer. It was in June. And I called Sanaya the next day. I said, I'm coming out. And she said, what? I said, I'm coming out. And she said, are you sure? I said, yeah, I have to. And I was doing it for me. I wasn't doing it for the hockey world. I wasn't doing it at that point for anyone else. I I just didn't want anyone to use my sexuality against me. If I could help a few people along the way, great. So I wrote that article um, and then it released in November, 2016. And I came out publicly. Clearly uh, you trusted Sanaya and she would have known if the call to her is I'm coming out. So what led to that level of trust with, of all things, somebody in the media? Come on. She saved my life. It wasn't for Sanaya to be dead. She saved my life when I was 18 years old. Uh, I was in Sault Ste. Marie, and she, you can ask her the story. She, she'll share it. If, you know, she would respect my privacy, and she has, but like I don't care if she shares it but um, I think it still haunts her (laughs) Um, it was dark and she took that I think she told my parents after um, just because they needed to know but other than that she she was a vault for me and I think there was something else too with Sanaya that she was a woman of color in predominantly at that point, like there was, I don't think there was any other women covering the league, let alone a woman of color. You know what I mean? So I think there was a sense of safety there that it was somebody different than the norm that I could kind of trust and rely on. And um, yeah, I, I say it all the time, but she saved my life. I know Farzi and I both think the world of Sanaya. I think after hearing that, somehow she even went higher on her list. As if that was possible. But yeah, Which, I felt yeah, exactly <laughs> the same. Absolutely. Like we all know she's an amazing person and insanely talented. Yeah. And then to hear that just puts her even higher. So um, if you, if anyone on our, of our viewers or listeners hasn't checked out the Sanaya Supergy episode, now's your time to go after we're done with. I'm going to check it out. You should. Um, I'm, I'm curious. Do you think with all the work you've done 
and all the work you can play has done and continues to do in yourself, it's a long road ahead of you. But do you think the OHL is ready for a player to come out currently in the league? I think, I don't think the league is prepared. I don't think the teams are prepared in the sense that they're doing any, like, I've begged them for, I went around the league for free in 2018. They would not make it mandatory. It's just whichever teams would bring me in. I have the same teams bringing me in every year. You know, uh, there's about half the league that all bring me in and have like, it's nice, you know, to have a night with rainbows in, in uh, on your stick and all that, but that's not impacting a locker room. That's not humanizing an issue that they don't fully understand that one of their teammates is probably dealing with. Like statistics are showing that it's closer to 20% of the population identifies LGBTQ plus and that younger generations, even if they're non-identifying experiment with the same sex at closer to like 40 or 50%. So somebody in that locker room, each and every one of them is curious or struggling or something. And there may be more than one. And these, we, we could put something together that'd be so impactful. Like I, I have the same people coming back to me saying, you need to come back in. I have teams coming to me being like, holy shit. Cause it's real. It's raw. It's honest and it's humanizing. And then it, then we educate these kids have been in such an insular environment their entire lives. The odds of them listening to outsiders is very slim. Uh, you know, I being a hockey guy gives me that cred amongst them a little bit. And then um, beyond that, you need to know how to approach this culture to start creating shifts. They use language not recognizing because everyone in the locker room from a very young age, 95 plus percent is probably white. Most come from middle to upper class. They're, everyone's assumed to be straight. So they can say whatever they want in a room, not thinking it impacts anyone from a very young age. And they're influenced by older generations who are now coaching them that kind of, you know, grew up in times where this was all normalized. So like those locker rooms are still filled with homophobic language. And, and it doesn't mean that anyone's a bad kid or anything else. And that's, uh, I get a lot of, when I say stuff about hockey culture, people get defensive because they see their, their father, their sister, their mom, their dad, their children, you know what I mean? Like they, they see their lives because it's ingrained in Canadiana. It's not that anyone's bad. It's that we're a product of an environment and we need to humanize these issues within it so that number one, the people who are straight start to shift things, shift their language, their behaviors, like those guys did in Sudbury when they knew me. And then number two, it then allows people to be themselves and create those safe spaces. And this goes beyond even LGBTQ+. I, I can go into a mall. I'll, I'll walk into a mall in, in Waterloo or Kitchener, and I'll tell you which kids play hockey. 
the way they walk, the way they dress, the way they talk. I was doing uh, um, an event with uh, one of those prep schools in Toronto, uh, a speaking gig, and it was virtual, Zoom. And, I, and they have kids from every sport. And every time I speak somewhere, I try, if it's in Canada, I try and pick out, and it's youth, I try and pick out a hockey kid um, to ask them a question. I picked out a guy. And I could just tell from the way he was sitting and dressed on a Zoom call that he was a hockey player. There was no hockey stuff behind him, nothing. It was a blank wall, kind of like me right now. Then he adds me to Instagram after, and I said, I knew it. I look him up. It's Hunter Heat, who's the first-round pick to the Barry Colts playing in the OHL. Lovely kid, wonderful, like, like real nice kid. But I knew right away. The conformity within our culture doesn't lead people to even step outside the, the norms that you have to dress, talk, walk, and can only talk about certain things, let alone be gay, <laughs> let alone be anything different. So I think there's what I try and do is humanize this, educate on LGBTQ+, but then I do breakouts with them on humanizing issues. I, I've gone into major junior locker rooms and said, tell me something. And it was funny. The first time I t- talked about this was with Ben Finelli. And I said, Ben, could you imagine bringing a book in the locker room and reading for fun? (laughs) And he goes, oh, you get chirped. I said, yeah, you'd be the fag. And his jaw dropped when I used that word. And I said, am I wrong? And he goes, no. So then we, you know, went through that. And and now I do that. So now after I'm done sharing and humanizing, we talk about how they can create shifts. We do a breakout and I go, okay, you tell me you're a family. Every team I've been around says they're brothers or a family or some analogy like that. I'm like, tell me something you enjoy that you typically wouldn't tell the team. And I said, because there's four things you're allowed to talk about in here. Women, sports, partying, and gaming. Maybe music a little bit, but really those are the big four. Those, and those are the things you're allowed to talk about in that locker room. I said, so tell me something you enjoy that you typically wouldn't tell a teammate. And then one of the teams, first time I did it, tough guy stood up and said, I love writing poetry. You can imagine that in a hockey locker room in the OHL. Then another player stands up and says, if I don't make the NHL, I want to be a zoologist. Zoologist. Yep. A a first-year player jumped out of his seat across the room and said, really? I love animal documentaries. (laughs) Now they're bonding on a deeper level. Now they're realizing that they don't have to conform to this BS thing that we all have to be the same in this culture. The coach goes, never told anyone this, but I dragged my wife to Broadway musicals every summer. Can you imagine that? Then I did another team. I did one this year where the first player stood up and said, I like lacrosse. I said, that's hockey with shoes on. I said, that's like the same thing. I said, that's like, you're, you're telling me what I already know, man. Like, like, come on. But, and then the next kid's like, I like camping. I'm like, I'm sure that's socially acceptable in this culture. Um, then the coach stood up and said, I love to sing. I sing in a band. Then a player goes, I play the piano. And before we knew it, they were all sharing stuff like this. 
Now imagine a player stands up and goes, now that they've realized, because my, my thing leading up to it is normal doesn't exist. It's an illusion. We're all a bunch of weirdos. And that's a beautiful thing. And the sooner we realize that and we don't try and conform to this norm, we realize we're all weirdos. We're all different. Less likely we're going to be to judge others. Less likely we're going to be to judge the Muslim kid who has comes from a different faith than traditionally it's mostly Christian kids, probably in hockey. Um, you know, the less likely we are to uh, judge a black player who may have uh, different cultural things that that's a part of his life or her life. And the same with a kid standing up and go, I'm gay. And that's what we need to get to is the OHL there. Absolutely not. Have I begged them? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I was doing it for free. I was literally going like traveling city to city for gas money, not even mileage, gas money in a hotel room. Just wanted to do it because I know it works. Um, are they ready? No. Was the WHL ready for Luke Prokop? No. Um, but, you know, they had to adapt because Luke was a third round pick in the NHL, a first round pick in their league, six foot five and signed in the NHL already. So force their hand. So to long-winded answer, but like to answer your question, if an elite player comes out, will the league adapt? Yeah, they'll have no choice. Will some teams adapt? Maybe not. Um, I, I know horror stories from the last five years in major junior hockey. I know of two kids who were told by their teams that if you come out, you're cut. And I, those kids quit hockey. And then I found out about them just after I'd come out and um, never got names, but like know enough from people in powerful enough positions that it was real. Um, But that still exists in this culture. So, so unless you're like, like Luke, you know, has a massive amount of privilege in his standing within the sport. So that allowed him to come out. Do I think that like a fourth line player in the O could come out or tell his team he's gay and, and it would be okay. I think he would have a tougher time still. Um, I wish they would do more. I I've asked them repeatedly. Uh, I would do it. <laughs> what do you want to see? I want to see it humanized, uh, followed up with education and reform the culture. Like no offense, a five game suspension, or even if they up that, um, isn't going to reform anything that doesn't reform someone who's constantly using homophobic language. If anything, first of all, once you start giving suspensions, it's like chewing tobacco guys still chew in the OHL. Maybe they vape now a little more than chewing, but they're still doing that. In my day, we chewed and, you know, we just found a way to hide it once it became a banned thing in the league. You get suspended for it, so we hit it. We still chewed. We chewed in the rink. We chewed on the bus. We chewed in the hotel. Like, we chewed everywhere. Guys vape. Guys still chew. It's still happening. They just learn not to get caught. Same with language. Right? They're not going to say that word in front of the referee. They still use those words. They use it in the locker room. They use it in chirps against the other team. They use it all the time. We need to humanize it so they learn the impact of those words. 
you know what, if they learn that, like, yeah, your teammate, your best friend potentially could be thinking about dying because of things like this. And I'm not an anomaly. Like that's a normal thing in this culture. You can look at suicide rates for queer teenagers. It's astronomical. If we humanized it and I've offered, I'd go across the whole CHL. I'd do it tomorrow. I just sat down with Portland. Like I I used to beg teams. I've stopped because I was doing it for nothing. and, And I was begging them. And I felt like it was like almost like an insult a little bit that I had to like, like plead with these teams in the league to let me in. Uh, we need to humanize and we need to, once things are humanized, I think they'll be more receptive to education. Hockey people like to rally and they're willing to rally. And I think gen- generally and the majority are really good people. We just need to teach them that things like this are, are rallying points. You know what I mean? We, we enter, we, we put our kids in hockey. Everyone always says they put their kids in hockey to learn teamwork, work ethic, learning from a coach or like a boss and, and all these other great characteristics you learn from hockey. Why can't you learn to treat people who are different than you with respect? Why can't you learn to, you know, because the reality is you leave sport and you enter the real world and, and you're going to be working next to somebody who doesn't look like you or has a different you know, uh, sexual orientation or, or gender identity or, you know what I mean? Like there's so many differences out there. The world isn't just like straight white boys like we see in this sport. And, that, and that's just a reality of society. So why aren't we doing it here? And, and one incredible thing, and, and, and you had somebody who's the first to come out in the sport, played in your league who is like, I I'm educated in this. I went back to school for, I went to Cornell for God's sakes to get educated in diversity and inclusion. I work with the top academics in these fields on education aspects. And we could, we could do that. And then we can reform it so that when people do step out of line, we, we work harder to shift it with them. You know, it's like, have you ever seen the documentary, the 13th? No, it's, it's fascinating. It talks about the prison system in the U.S. versus like Denmark. And yet people are going to talk about socialism if I say that. But like that aside, you look at the prison system in the United States and they, you go to jail. You basically make products for this privatized system. Like so you're suspended essentially, right? Then you're thrust back in. You haven't been given any education. You haven't seen, given any counseling. You haven't, you know, looked at if you're a product of an environment that fostered this or any of the root causes of why you went to jail. And then the reincarceration rate is over 75%. <laughs> like, but people make money when people go to jail in the United States. In Denmark, you work with a therapist, you get an education, you do all these different things while you're in jail and their reincarceration rate is less than 1%. In hockey, we penalize like the American jail system. It doesn't work. We have a lot of repeat offenders in a lot of different areas of the sport. What if we looked at that and said, hmm, why don't we try something else? We'd still suspend them. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying they should play while they're doing that, but like reform it. Teach them, 
guide them, show them the impact. They'll shift. They will. I've seen it. I've, I've seen it firsthand. I wish we would do that in this league. I wish we'd do it across the CHL because I think major junior hockey has the most influence of any level of hockey, of any hockey players in the world. I think major junior players, the Kitchener Rangers players in a non-COVID year have more influence than Connor McDavid. That sounds crazy, I know. They're accessible. Connor McDavid is Brad Pitt. He is. Like Sidney Crosby, that's Brad Pitt. You don't see Brad Pitt going to the grocery store. You know what I mean? These kids you do, but fans treat them like they're NHL players. Kids look up to them the same way. But now they're accessible to the fans, to kids, to their peers, to everybody. The way they walk, the way they talk, the way they dress influences the entire culture. Is the most influential level of the sport. And until we get into the locker rooms and start shifting things and evolving it, it'll never change. It'll never be a safe space. And and I've been saying this all over and over. I would not recommend an LGBTQ plus youth to play boys hockey. And that makes me so sad because I love hockey. You know, along with an annual mandatory program, because we know the league does it for mental health, for example, they've got their talk today program, right? So let's, let's have something that happens at the beginning of every year. Maybe there's a check-in, but even and above that, your, your example, Brock, of the 13th, that documentary makes me think instead of just three, five, eight, 10, 20 game suspensions, what about three, five, eight, 10, 20 hours of diversity and inclusion, training, studying, learning, more humanizing, maybe it's, the, uh, you know, the, the coaches with the player, if it's coming from there, if it's coming from a household thing, maybe it's a, a sit down with the parents and say, listen, this has to be something, you know, when Tony D'Angelo did that stuff in the OHL, there should have been a whole sit down and a whole reform system in place with the parents who say, yeah, we use this language too. Well, if you want to play in our league, it's a privilege to play in the league. Then this needs to evolve. And, and, and it, you know what I mean? And, it, and it's looking at all aspects of it and how do we evolve it? Not just, you know, reactionary. Hockey's so reactionary. We know why there's a mental health program now. We know why there's, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, a program about gender equity or, or about women in, in how to treat women and whatnot we know why those are there and they didn't spawn out because, you know, the sport wanted to necessarily do them. They came from instances in the culture where things went bad. I'm curious to know when you hear in hockey, whether it's major junior or pro or whatever, when you hear of a player being suspended for using a homophobic slur, what goes through your mind? I don't get mad at them. They're a product of an environment. You know what I mean? I think every time it happens, it's a failure on Hockey Canada, on USA Hockey or whatever, wherever they came from. It's, it's a failure of the sport, wherever, whatever level they're currently at, for not doing more. It's the same, you know, with any comments. 
like they're a product of a culture of an environment. And, and until we shift that environment and, and I kind of explain the root of the environment, it's so insular and I get into that, but it would take me an hour. It's like really deep. And I've, I've done the digging, I've done the work to like break this down to a point where it can be simplified and, and broken out and, and um, understood. And I've worked with enough academics that literally study this stuff. It can be done, but like, it's hard to get mad at them. Like they've heard that word since they were six. What, what, do, what do I expect of somebody that hears the same word every day? Like think about it. hockey kids are together six nights a week from the age of six or seven years old, the same 20 or so kids then move to play junior then seven days a week. It's on repeat. How can I expect them to be, you know, to know more or be better than that? If that's the environment they've been immersed in since they were children, you know, even if their parents are like, I mentioned that kid earlier, the kid that Brad Chenier stood like told to do push-ups. His growing up in that household, the F word you couldn't say was fake. That was that was the word you couldn't say in that household growing up. Mom's best friends was uh, a lesbian couple. Her two best friends. Uh, when the father sees me, every time, like to this day, gives me a hug and says, "I'm walking this journey with you. We all are." You know what I mean? So like, but they're probably spending more time at the rink and in those rooms than they are with their parents. And then they move away. It's you're influenced by the culture you're in. Spend more time there than likely at school. They spend, and even at school, they're mostly hanging out with each other growing up. And then they go on to junior where it's, you know, they're, they're in, uh, schools where they're pretty much just together and they're at the rink seven days a week. They're together. When they're not at the rink, they only really know each other in these communities they move to. We, we need to humanize, educate, and reform. And until that happens, I, I don't see how it can be a space that is safe. Like I wouldn't put my kid in hockey. That makes, and, and not even if they were, you know, weren't gay. Like I just, it, it's just, I know how it goes. And that makes, again, makes me sad. I love it. I love that answer, that they're a product of their environment. I mean, and damn, have you given me a lot to think about and, uh, you know, work on this league? Because, you know, Chris and I get on the league for a variety of things. And, geez, considering the things we get, Popper, we're going to have to get on them for different things. Because yeah, <laughs> Brock is, like, so on the money with this. Why we don't have a mandated program to train this, to start to shift this culture, I, because obviously it's a big, big thing to shift. I, I I'm telling you, I've, I, I have a program that could do it. I've already created it. And when we're off recording, I'll tell you something I can't say on air. Um, but I, it's, it's doable. It's there. I, I don't know why I, I don't even get emails answered now. Like I've, I've, begged and pleaded like i've sat down with the league i've gone through their league and now it's certain teams will bring me in year after year and the rest is crickets i'm sure you don't want to i want to call out those other teams (laughs) i really do (laughs) we'll get we'll get to the bottom of that i want to be uh, i want to be conscious of our time brock but i i also i 
I'm, I'm very curious. You talked earlier about those feelings while you were not living your true self, playing the game. You've got the anger. You've got the self-loathing. When you came out, was it like a switch being flipped? Did it take time? Like, was there an immediate relief and reaction? There was an immediate release of emotion. I had, I was done playing. I was running my businesses, but I was finishing my degree. And I was actually in class when the article came out. But I warned the professor at the start. I said, listen, there's an article coming out. I don't know. I might have to leave. Uh, my phone was blowing up so much and it was, it got so much traction right away. Like the entire class was staring at me because they saw it on their phones. And then, you know, the prof just canceled class. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to shut my phone off. I'm just going to like, I don't know what to do. And I'm like, I'm going to go to the gym. Cause that's my instant, like, I'm just going to go work out and I don't have to think about anything. And I just went, I got there and I sat on a mat and cried. It was like uh, every single different emotion came over me that day. And then that day I received over 10,000 messages from people all over the world. Um, the majority supportive, like I've gone the death threats and all that fun stuff, but they've mostly come when I've been critical of the sport or uh, the NHL. Like I remember one time I was critical of the NHL and I got like 150 death threats one weekend. That was fun. Um, I laugh but, just because you're smiling, telling us about Well, that. people were DMing me my address. And I was like, how do you know where I live? Like this is, but whatever you want like here I am like come like you can't hurt me any more than I've already been you know struggled and felt and so it doesn't impact like that doesn't bother me the hate and stuff but um all those messages I wasn't anticipating I thought I'd get like five ten messages from people and you know my family relatives whatever I didn't even tell my parents I was releasing this like I told nobody my brother calls me and goes why didn't you like what like <clears throat> I just didn't think it would be a big deal I really didn't um I never expected it to be where I am now like where I'm you know traveling the world as a speaker and I have a tv show with RuPaul's Drag Race and I'm negotiating deals with sports networks and different things like it's I don't know I'm on that um, the hockey news top 100 list. Like, I'm like, what's happened? Like, so surreal. But uh, at that moment, it was just every emotion and shock. And, uh, but then it got dark because I hadn't fully, I thought I had, I hadn't fully dealt with all the shit I'd gone through. Um, and then people start coming to me with their struggles. And that's where I, um, I'm most passionate about that work. It doesn't pay the bills the way like some of the corporate gigs and stuff do, but going to school, it's like, uh, you wouldn't believe how many, actually I've spent so much time in uh, the Waterloo regional district school board. Like I've, that's probably the, the board that's brought me in the most of anywhere in Canada. It's really cool. Um, but um, when kids started coming to me with their struggles and people would every time they did, it would bring back mine 
And then I didn't know how to detach from theirs and still help them and be support. So I would take on theirs. And that was tough to get used to. Somebody like literally somebody's coming to you saying, I'm going to end my life today. And now you're the only person in the world who knows. And it's weird to say that I'm kind of used to that. <laughs> like it feels a little messed up to say, but like now I've learned how I had to go back to therapy. I started canceling speaking gigs. I would have uh, panic attacks the day before. I just couldn't take it. Uh, six months after coming out, I was in, I was, wouldn't leave my bed. And um, it took me a little while to, get used to that. I went back to therapy, worked with my therapist and, and learn how to be support without taking on people's struggles. And that ultimately they have to make decisions for themselves and I can, you know, sort of lead them to water, but it's their choice whether they drink it or not. Um, so in learning that, like it was nice at first and then it got, sort of dark and then it was like well now what what am i am i like still a hockey trainer am i a public speaker what is my life and then finally i I was traveling every week when COVID hit i'd been on the road for 44 straight weeks and i was living in Sudbury still no sorry i'd moved here in september of 2019 but before that i was living in Sudbury doing this and still running the hockey stuff So I'd be back and forth. Like I'd go to San Diego and fly right back to train like Mitch Martin the next day. You know what I mean? Like I was like literally back and forth all over the place trying to run hockey camps in summer because I felt like I owed these kids. They've been with me for so long. And, um, but when it hit, like when COVID hit, I was literally nonstop. I'd been on the road traveling the world and, it's now just like my passion and helping and supporting people and uplifting and championing and, and also creating agents of change, like sharing the Brad Cheney story and having people realize that you can be that courageous and you can stand up. And, you know, that one incident had a ripple effect that led to me standing in front of them in the UK or in somewhere in the U S or <clears throat> anywhere in Canada. And that wouldn't happen without him in that moment. And that one step we take as individuals, we don't know that it might seem small in that moment. We can have such a massive impact on society. We don't even know it. It's at this point of the podcast that Mike usually chirps me because I have one last question. I know we've kept you a little long here, so I oh, apologize. Keep me as long as you want. This, it's fun. This issue is so important. Um, <clears throat> give you a chance. Tell us about uh, Alphabet Sports Collective. So near the start I wish of the, pan- the sports word was a B word, so it would A, B, C, but that's just... I, I, I know. <laughs> I, I, I know. It would have been cool. <laughs> I didn't think that through. Um, so it's, the name itself is interesting. There's the thing uh, when uh, when LGBTQ plus people are on the internet and and something happens that's like homophobic in society or transphobic, and you know they're tweeting about it. Um, when people attack them now, 
they're getting a little less overt in their forms of homophobia and they call it the alphabet mob. So instead of saying you bunch of, you know, F word or whatever you want to call it, they just say the alphabet mob. And, and it's basically saying the same thing. It's just, you know, a modern form of it essentially. So it's like, well, let's reclaim it. Let's reclaim it early. Screw it. And it's all inclusive at the same time because it has every letter in the alphabet. So I was like, I want alphabet. Um, and uh, so at the start of the pandemic, I tweeted out, I said, I want to start an off for profit for queer people in hockey. Because um, there's groups out there, but none of them focus on individuals. It's either like awareness type stuff. Like you mentioned, you can play, and I know they have an event coming up and kitchen stuff where it's like a pride night which is lovely and and visibility matters but i wanted something for people and i didn't see anything out there so i tweeted about it and i had like three thousand messages people saying i'll join can i join when are you starting let's do it i've had people add me and uh unfollow me and unfollow me on twitter about 10 times the one person because i haven't like asked them to help me start it yet and they just keep like, are you ready yet? And I'm like, we're like, forms are with the government. And then as soon as I'm basically saying, like, we're at this step, they unfollow me because they're mad. And it's like, they're just excited and it's fine. But um, when I saw that response, I went, Kayla, I got to do this. So I messaged uh, one of my dear friends from, I've met through all this is Dr. Cheryl McDonald, who's, um, uh, she studied homophobia in men's hockey uh, as a postdoc. And um, she, she studied homophobia in men's hockey, I think in her PhD as well. Yeah. So when I say I have the people to put a program together for major junior hockey, I'm not even like I have, and I'll tell you more here, but I have the people. Um, so I, message Cheryl and then Cheryl has a friend out in Vancouver who runs a not-for-profit out there and used to run run one through a University of Alberta for years so she messaged him three of us got on call and before I knew it Brian Mortensen Cheryl and I were like okay we're starting this so then before I knew it I was like recruiting slowly strategically some people to join and we have about 30 people putting this together right now uh, we have a real diverse group. Uh, and what I want to do with it, what my main goals, I'm sure everyone has different goals with it, but in my mind, what I see is um, queer people don't have a space. We, we just saw it. There was uh, a kid at a, a kid, he's late 20s or something, but he was at a Colorado Avalanche game last week. And after the game, he was standing outside waiting for his Uber and he was wearing Boston Bruins jersey. He's originally from Boston and um, uh, three fans started. He, they chirped the Bruins. He said, Oh, we'll get you next time. And I guess his mannerisms, they thought he was gay and uh, they beat the shit out of him. Out like right after the game and we're uttering homophobic slurs and different things. And uh, there's no space for that kid. You know what I mean? And, and so I started looking at incidents like that and saying there's, I felt so alone too. Like 
all the work I'm doing and I laugh about the death threats and stuff, but it's lonely. Like a lot of these leagues and team, like they don't particularly love me all the time because I have to be critical because nothing's getting done. And I hate being critical because I'm usually a fun loving goofy guy in real life. And I, I have to be the person, you know, criticizing them in the media. And I, I hate it, but I have to, because there's no one else to do it. So they don't love me. Um, and I felt really alone because they get pissed off at me and, and the fans get pissed off at me. So, and I thought, well, if I'm alone, all these other people are alone. Like that guy was alone. You know, I reached out to him. We actually, uh, Boston Bruins sent him a bunch of stuff and one of their players made a video for him and, and some really cool things. Um, and, you know, we're trying to support as much as I can, but what if we had a group where we could all feel apart? And it just, like, let's do that. Let's, let's build a community. And then those struggles that I've had that all these people come to me with, now we can support each other. Now we could raise money and, and provide therapy for people who can't afford it within this space so they can deal with the trauma they've experienced within it. You know, like that guy is going to need therapy. Like he, that's a hate crime. Like that, that's trauma that's not just going to go away. It's not a regular fight that two people just don't get along. Three people intentionally, you know, attacked him for being gay. Um, then once we get people feeling good and, and feeling apart and building community. And, and I saw it this summer uh, for Pride Month, the NHL, their first tweet was this year for Pride, we're going to celebrate allies. And it was like, oh, straight people celebrating straight people for pride. I'm like, that's a choice. And people were really upset. So I said, okay, well, I'll, I'll, uh, anyone who wants to be interviewed and celebrated, I'll do it. I did 120 interviews in two weeks. We, we capped it off at 120. I had six volunteer people scheduling and, and helping me set up after I tweeted it. Uh, we had over 200, 300 people email in to be interviewed. We had over 50 volunteers editing and, and clipping and captioning. And MLSE eventually started helping us too because we we're falling behind. And I released them on my, on Twi- just on Twitter. And it was called Hockey Pride. Those people all talk to each other now on Twitter. They form bonds. There's people in Australia talking to people in San Jose. And like, it's wild. But what if we had that all the time? How good would we feel? How good would people feel if they had a space, a safe space for them? So it's like, okay, let's start there. And now we start getting people to feel good, working through their shit and everything else. And then we mobilize. We don't have any seats on any, at, at any table. We're not, you know, like we may have some queer people that, might be out, might not, that are sitting on boards. But if they are, they're alone. You know, we should have seats at every table. Well, if we get people feeling good and feeling a part of something and knowing they have this entity with three plus thousand people, hopefully, um, a part of it, this community, they're going to know that people like myself have their back when things go awry or if they go awry in their community on their local minor hockey board. Once we have people on the boards, we can start creating shifts. We can start doing more education. We can start pushing for more of it and demanding it. 
You know what I mean? And then eventually we can create a space that is safe for queer youth to play the sport. And I, I think about this story. I had this trans boy come to me a couple of years ago. He was 16 or 17. And he was cutting himself daily. And he was dealing with body dysmorphia issues and different things. And then he found bodybuilding and weightlifting. And he started going to the gym every day. And all I kept thinking is, wow, shouldn't that be hockey here? And it's not. But we can get it there. So my whole goal for this is to get it there. Get these people feeling good and apart. So then they're willing to step up. So that next generation can love this sport and take part and not feel like they have to quit. I'm going to do here what I usually tease Chris for doing, and that is, you know, just one more. But I, I got it because we, we like to think, or at least I do, that we have listeners across the Ontario Hockey League in every market. Maybe it's possible, but the fan base is absolutely in Kitchener where Chris and I are based. And you mentioned the name not too long ago, Brock, and that is Mitch Martin. He's already endeared himself uh, to the fans in Kitchener. I can yeah, tell you that. Like and to the him? coaching staff. They Do they like him? They like him a ton. So since you oh. know him so much better, <laughs> change that. Change that impression right now. Yeah, they should get to know him a little bit. Have they heard him speak? <laughs> like, uh, like I, I don't know. Like, uh, if, if you'd seen the guy that I've known since he was 12 years old. No. <laughs> Um, diva. No, I'm just kidding. He's, he's, <laughs> That's being uh, brought up in a post game interview. Please, please do tell him I called him a diva next time. It seems like he only scores like hot tricks. So <laughs> next, then, so that will probably be the next time you interview him is when he gets a hot trick. Um, it's hot trick or bust for Mitchie. Um, but. Mitch is a special young man. It's interesting. I've worked with hundreds of hockey players and uh, right away, I just, I saw something special in him as a person. Uh, he's one of the most intelligent people I've ever met in my life. He is brilliant. He is a critical thinker. He is smart. He is thoughtful. He would do anything for anyone. And I genuinely believe that. I've, uh, we are so close that his mom refers to, uh, when she's talking to me, she refers to Mitch as my son. She's like, your son did this today. Um, and and <laughs> I don't know how Kevin, his dad, feels about that. But, um, <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, some of the things he does, he's probably like, yeah, you can take them. But uh <laughs> I just, I talk to him every day. I watch, uh, I, I don't, it's really weird. I love hockey, but I can't watch it anymore. Uh, where the culture's at and everything that's gone on the last few years. I don't watch a lot of hockey, but I watch every Kitchener Rangers game. Uh, just for Mitch. I was on the phone with him right before we started this. And uh, I have never had a player and all the other, like, guys got jealous. And they thought I favored him. Uh, parents got jealous. And it wasn't that I was favoring him. He just, I would make myself available to every single kid. And it was day or night. And if he wanted to work, I'd work. 
If you wanted extra on-ice training, I'll do it. If you want extra off-ice, I'll do it. He'd be texting me. He'd be 14 years old. Can we go on the ice at 6 tomorrow before school? Yeah, Mitch. Can I come over and do a workout after school? After, you know, but we'll go on the ice in the morning and I'll do a workout. And then can you drive me to practice right from there? Sure. And it was like that every day. And it was nonstop. It was like, I need more ice. Why don't we have ice? What's going on? And he'd feel stressed if we, we didn't get ice. Like we still analyze things and break things down and how can we improve? And, and he always wants to get better. And he's really unique in that way. And every year, I think his second halves are always better than his first because he never stops. Like he watches video of every, he watches every shift he has and breaks it down after every game. Like, I don't know how many guys do that in the league today, but um, it's, I'm sure more than when I was playing, but he, he's a unique kid. And, and I, I, I think the um, possibilities are limitless for him if he continues to push and work and he won't stop until he does. So uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we see his name one day and uh, with, you know, during on hockey night in Canada. Are you allowed to uh, put yourself in Mitch's shoes? If you were doing one of those workshops with him in the locker room and he's going to stand up and say, I write poetry, I play the piano. I sing. Can you do that for Mitch? Give us something away from the game. Oh, that Mitch likes? Yeah. Yeah. I've never met a person that sleeps so much. <laughs> like, I know that's like a typical teenage thing, but like, if that guy's not at the rink, he's probably asleep. It's, it's the oddest thing. Um, what else does Mitch like? Oh, Mitch thinks he's a really good basketball player. And we go to war. So I, I went up to visit my parents a few times in the summer. And uh, we meet up and we play one-on-one. And then it was tennis. And I was crushing him. Tell him I just laid a beating into him in tennis. Uh, Mitch is a naturally gifted athlete every sport he plays. Uh, but he loves sports. Um, I want him to get a few more things. He's very socially aware. I think that's would be his thing. Like he's aware of like, like the black lives matter movement. He's aware of like the things going on in society, whereas most guys, his age probably aren't as socially aware of everything that's going on. He's very uh, well read. He likes riddles, loves riddles. um, And, um, I keep trying to get him into it. I just got his mom into it and she's brilliant too. I like, it's ridiculous, but I'm trying to get him to start playing Wordle. Yeah. I was just going to mention, yeah. of course, uh, his <laughs> mother went like 50, and zero to start. Like she hasn't lost like, um, and he would too. He he's like, he loves little like limerick. Like, you know, those, what, what are those called where you, you have to like, you have a couple hints of something, but then you have to like guess the answer. And it's almost like in a, uh, it's almost like a puzzle, but I'm going to ask him what it is, but I'll, I'll let you know what it is. Uh, you know, um, but yeah, so he's, um, he's special. Well, you'd be happy to know your kid is a good kid. 
Yeah. So yes. <laughs> I did a good job. That's good because there would be some reform happening <laughs> if he wasn't. Well done. Well done. Well, I at eight o'clock I looked up and I thought, oh, has this been like 20 minutes already? And it had already been an hour. So uh this has been absolutely fantastic. And on behalf of Mike and I, thank you for for coming on. And uh, I hope everyone listens to this podcast. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people, he, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. Had all, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast, heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from jeffwoodsradio.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.